How did they get into the sewage? They, let's see, it looks like they were sampling. Wetsuits. Yeah, they were just sampling from effluent. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by what people mean by the term normal. So hmm. presumably, <laughs> like, like, like me, the most common question you've been getting for the past year is, when are things going to go back to normal? And then, and then you hear all of the responses on TV say, well... It depends on what you mean by normal. <laughs> that is not a helpful answer. It is not a helpful answer. What does anybody mean by normal? I, I know. Like, I mean, come on. Normal is normal. Well, like the difference between the word normality and normalcy, I feel like those get used a lot, like interchangeably. And then I realized I'm not sure I understand the distinction. So is there what a is distinction? the distinction? Norm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, now I've questioned everything, but I, I, I feel like I hear like normal, normalcy and then normality. I don't know. Maybe there is no difference. I, I, I only know about Abby Normal. Abby Normal. <laughs> I think I went to middle school with her. <laughs> I probably right, invited well. her to the prom and she said no. <laughs> that would not. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to comment on, on that one at all, but I, I am. Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I'm here, as always, with Dr. Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Good afternoon on this beautiful spring day. It is a nice sunny day in Boston, which is nice. And we are also joined by Dr. Jess Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. And as a reminder, if you can head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, that's BU's hub for lifelong learning. You'll find all kinds of interesting tools, games, programs, whatever it is you're looking for. And also give us a rating on your, your favorite app for your podcast so it helps other people find us. Plus, we enjoy them. Now, we don't have a new rating to report. But I did want to tell you both in case you were not aware that we did, we got a tweet from Rain Freeman. So I don't know if either of you know, Rain, but she uh, tweeted that I she said, I feel like at pop healthy X slash at prof Matt Fox might appreciate that my partner at the Julian Gomez, a writer and director for at minute earth, who sometimes listens with me to the PHX podcast made a Video inspired by cool science shared during an amazing and amusing bit. And the, the, she gives the YouTube link. It was an article that we did on plants that suck up metals. Chris, do you remember that one? Yeah. So all you. So there you go. You've got a YouTube video that has been made based on one of your amazing and amusings. Cool. I'm so glad to hear that. Yep. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study on the relationship between opioids and risk of fractures. In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about what we can expect with measles once we get past the COVID epidemic. And then in our Amazing and Amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or Chris will tell us about music, or hawks, or chipmunks <laughs> avoiding hawks, or something sodium ions, <laughs> some, or sodium ions. There you go, something along those lines. So let's get into segment one. So we're going to talk about an article that looked at the effects of opioids 
and Risk of Fracture. It was published in one of our favorite journals, the American Journal of Epidemiology. And full disclosure, I am on the editorial board at, at the American Journal of Epidemiology. The study was entitled Opioids and Risk of Fracture, a self-controlled case series study in the Clinical Practice Research Data Link by first author Emily Peach of the Division of Epidemiology and Public Health at the University of Nottingham in the UK. Now, there weren't any headlines on this because this was a pre-publication it was, it was peer-reviewed, but it was not yet out in print on a topic that is not COVID-related and everything in the news is COVID-related, but it was one that we were interested in. So Jess, can you start off by giving us the rundown on what went on in this study? Sure. And I thought I thought this was kind of a powerhouse of a study in a good way in reading it. And mm-hmm. if I could if I could whistle, I would kind of like, whoo, this was this was this was a this was nicely done just as a, mm-hmm. a preface and kind of jumping into this one. So So as Matt said, this study is about opiate use or opiate prescription, maybe more specifically, and and fracture and bone fracture. And some of the, the general context is that opiates are obviously often prescribed to control severe pain, especially in older people. And fractures are a major public health and medical risk, especially among older people who are experiencing osteoporosis. And they estimate there's you know, 9 million fractures a year and that they can lead to a significant amount of morbidity and also in an eventual uh, progression to, to mortality. So what one of the things that was so interesting about this study was the study design. They used a design called a self-controlled case series, which is kind of a neat design. So basically, this was a study that was conducted in the context of the electronic health records. This was a medical records review. And what they did over a, I think it was a seven-year study period, they extracted a subset of participants in the medical record who experienced both the exposure which was prescription to opiates, and also the outcome, which was bone fracture, and then calculated the incidence rate ratio comparing risk of fracture for an individual during the period of time that they contributed to their overall study experience when they were exposed to opiates or where they had an active opiate prescription compared to a period of time where they were not exposed to opiates. They did not, they did not have an active opiate prescription in the medical record. And so what this allows, it allows for standardization of a lot of potential confounding factors within comparing individuals by basically generating the incidence rate ratio on an individual's contribution of person time and that and that risk during that person time specifically. So this was a really interesting study design, I thought, just kind of like as the, as the premise. This was an interesting way to study this sort of question. Um, and there's other ways they could have done it, but I, I appreciated this as something slightly different. The study took place, um, as I said, it had more than seven million participants in the UK from the Clinical Practice Research Data Link, the CPRD Gold database. And they generated, which I thought was very intriguing, a time-varying metric of exposure to opiates, looking at people's prescription records within the context of the medical record. They looked at the dates of prescription, gaps between those dates, and the duration of total exposure. They also tried to estimate a measure of the dose that someone might be receiving to see if there was a dose-dependent risk of fracture on the basis of someone was getting a higher dose of opiates, for example, 
compared to uh, a lower dose. And so they converted the dose in the prescription to the oral morphine equivalent dose in order to kind of standardize the dose. So that could be a that, that could be standardized across participants. They included confounders in their models that would be time variant within the same individual. So that included things like age. So the, the participant was aging and presumably risk of fracture would increase by age. They included season, maybe under the assumption that in a, a winter season, someone might slip more. You know, for example, in terms of there might be a higher risk of a fracture for an outdoor, being outdoors during that time. They also adjusted for exposure to drugs that otherwise increase the risk of bone fracture, although that confounder didn't affect their model in a significant way in the end, and so was not included in their adjusted models. But their adjusted models did include age and did include season at the end. And they also did some interesting stratification by older or less than 65, by sex and by dose of the opiates. They used fixed effects Poisson regression models, for those of you who are interested in the statistical approach. And there were about 67,000 people who were who were in the study when they kind of ran all their exclusion criteria, the people who had the exposure and both the outcome, which accounted for about 87,000 fractures and about 452,000 years of follow-up during their study period. About 60% were women and more than 90% were white, just as an aside note as well about the study population. So considering exposure aggregated and not looking at the time, they also, and I'll make one other note, they also, which was very interesting, they looked at the timing of the opiate dose in relation to the fracture. So they stratified by the first week of opiate exposure and then other time points, um, kind of subsequent time points after initial prescription. And then they also looked at what happened to people who who stopped and then started opiate use again and their risk of fracture after a gap period between prescription time. So what they found is they found that the incidence rate ratio was approximately four. So basically nearly a fourfold increase in the risk of fracture associated with the periods of opiate use. And this risk was greatest during the first seven days of use, which was kind of a dramatic finding that during the first seven days of opiate use, um, this was the highest risk of fracture and the incidence rate ratio was almost eight during that first period. And they found, again, that the incidence rate ratio decreased throughout the duration of time a person was on an opiate or had an active opiate prescription. But then they, after a gap period, they found an elevated risk again of fracture, but it wasn't as high as the initial period. The incidence rate ratio was approximately five. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the overall view of this study. I thought it was kind of interesting and I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts. Yeah, it's a, it's a, as you point out, it's a really strong design. So it's essentially mimicking, it's the observational version of the crossover trial where you have one person getting both the intervention and the comparison. And like with a, like with a, a crossover trial, it only works if you're studying something for which there is no lingering effect of the intervention. So if taking opioids today affects my risk of, of, of a fracture, you know, a year from now, then you can't use this design. You have to have, you have to deal with things that have fairly short periods of, of hypothesized activity, 
for this to work. And that's why you don't see these more often. They, they are much more useful for things that you would use for a short period of time and don't have these, these longer lingering effects. The advantage is that they are, it's a strong design in that because each person serves as their own control, then anything that is time fixed about an individual, their, you know, sex, age, more or less, obviously you're older, you know, after you take the opioids than not, but your age is roughly the same in that time period. Any of those time fixed things become perfectly balanced and and you don't have confounding by those time fixed factors. So Chris, what was your what was your take on this study? I, I think I would agree with the both of you. I, I, I really like the self-contained case study method. I, I first became uh, familiar with this when I was back at, at uh, Novartis because, you know, we we would often be interested in looking at safety analyses around vaccines post-licensure. And the traditional tools we use to look at that, like case control studies or, or, or cohort studies, tend to be very, very biased because of the healthy user effect. And so they almost, you know, invariably penalize your your vaccine. Whereas the self-controlled case study gives you a much cleaner opportunity to look at the, the relationship between the exposure and the outcome. So I, I, I'm a fan of this design. I think it, it is, you know, when it when it can be used, it's a very rigorous and very clean answer. Now, the bigger picture, you know, sort of, I, I, I guess the one thing I was sort of scratching my head about is, 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 is why, why this was a question, because it seems sort of obvious that, you know, if you are taking a, a drug that is incredibly sedating and reduces your, you know, your level of awareness in all sorts of ways, that you're going to be at an increased risk of falls. So it, it, in that sense, I felt like they kind of proved that the world was round because I couldn't see how the answer could be anything other than your risk of, of fractures goes up when you are taking opioids, except in the, the, the case where the opioids are, are so sedating that you're basically, you know, are an, unable to get out of bed. But even there, you know, people fall out of beds and break their hips all the time. So, you know, yeah, I, Chris, I, I, I suppose I would say the, the, the question, I suppose, is not I, I think you're right about that. I think the question is, how, how big a problem is this? Uh, well, it's a huge problem. You mean, are, are, are we concerned of the, of the public health implications? It's, it's massive. I mean, we, we see evidence of this, you know, outside our building where, you know, you know, we, we see uh, individuals who've, who have been to the methadone clinic, for example, and are, are now sort of standing in a semi-stupor on the edge of the, of the sidewalk in a kind of a, you know, a semi-crouch, trying not to fall into, you know, the path of a truck coming right at them, completely mm-hmm. oblivious to what's going on around. I, I had this this experience a while back where, you know, we, I was coming back from lunch with one of our colleagues and and there was a, a, a man passed out on the on the on the sidewalk who had obviously suffered, you know, an opioid overdose because his eyes were pinpoint. And we had just called 911 when a, a woman who was an associate of this gentleman came running up reached into her purse and handed us an, a Narcan inhaler. And I, I delivered, you know, the two puffs up his nostrils. And, you know, moments later, if you've ever seen this, it's kind of like, it's an amazing, you know, an example of pharmacology in action because the, the effect is so profound and so instantaneous because, you know, his eyes dilate, he moans, he gets up and then immediately shuffles straight into traffic. Mm. You know, I mean, it was like one, two, three, straight in, right into cars, and immediately their cars screeching and, and honking their horns and like indignant that this guy has basically just like marched across Mass Ave without looking left or right, straight after being resuscitated from an, from an overdose. So, I mean, these drugs are 
incredibly powerful. And so obviously they're going to lead to falls. Yeah, Chris, I, so I think you've hit the, the nail on the head here in that the the question itself is, it's not a question of, is this, you know, are you going to be at increased risk? It's a question of how big, and these are, I mean, these are big numbers, you know, in certain, on the, as you all know, I, I relative effects don't, you know, are, are not my preference. I'd prefer the absolute, but on the relative scale, we're talking about, you know, eightfold increased risk in the first week of, of starting opioids. I mean, that is, you know, depending on what the baseline is, that's a, a potentially really large increased risk demanding some kind of action be taken. So to me, the question then becomes how how much do we believe that number, that eightfold increase? Mm, and yeah, to me- I, I think it really it, it is really believable because what what you're what we're just seeing in the data is tachyphylaxis, which is the, the the highfalutin term for you become resistant to the opiates and you require increasing increasing doses to achieve the same therapeutic effect. And so it, it actually totally makes sense that the risk would be highest at the beginning when the drug is having its most potent effect, and then that effect will will rapidly diminish as your body becomes more accustomed to it and can metabolize it or in other ways adapt to the, the, the to the opioid. So I agree with you, Chris. It does it does make sense. On the other hand, there is another possible explanation that would lead to the same presumed pattern of increased risk immediately after, which is reverse causation. So if you get the timing of the prescription wrong, and actually the fall is what leads to the the opioids, then you would expect to see a large effect immediately after initiation that would then, I think, would then you'd expect to go down. Now, they have they've taken steps to try to minimize that. So I don't I certainly don't believe that that is an explanation for everything that's going on here. But it does strike me as, you know, possible that some of the effect is explained by, you know, just not having the the timing of the events quite right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would, yeah. yeah, no, I I would agree with that. And I was, I mean, they they had, you know, for example, one of the figures that they showed was kind of timing for a hypothetical participant in their study that kind of showed the durations of time and how they would superimpose the dosing on top of that. I I was a little, I was questioning, I was thinking as I was reading the paper, I was thinking about exposure misclassification also and how that, you know, the, the premise of this paper, when I first saw the headline, I was thinking what Chris was thinking, that it was about opiate addiction and falls among people who were addicted to opiates and, and a, a younger population primarily. And mm-hmm. most of the participants in this study were older people who were, you know, these were, these were opiate prescriptions and as a reflection of opiate use. And so I wasn't, I was interested in that, in that idea that are people taking the drugs as prescribed, the assumption mm-hmm. is they are, and also that they are only taking them during periods that they are prescribed them by a doctor. Whereas we know that opiate prescription often can morph into addiction in a way that it does not stop when your prescription ends. And so I was interested in which, which would then potentially suggest that their results are overinflated or are inflated, that the estimates are higher than would be truthful in that sense. If it appears as if people are being misclassified as non-exposed when actually they are exposed. I mean, the thing is, we don't know this information. There could equally be people who are misclassified in the other direction, you know, who would be classified, you know, as using the drugs, but actually are not taking the prescription as prescribed. 
Yeah, I would think it would go in the other direction, though, the bias, because I would think that essentially what you're saying is what we're doing in this study is comparing opioid use to opioid use. And so if you actually were to remove the opioid use that's happening when we're classifying people as unexposed, presumably the effect would be even larger if there's really an effect of, of opioids on on fractures. So I'm not sure which, you know, I'm not 100% sure, but I would think that that would under lead to underestimating the effect. Maybe you're right. I think, I mean, I think the idea of kind of if you have a you have a group of people and you're saying they're not taking the medication, but actually they are taking the medication. And and then how does that kind of fall into your overarching picture of bias? It depends if, you know, I guess it depends, like you're saying, in the direction of if there is a true association, then yes, I suppose you're right. Yeah. So I, well, I want to go back to what you said in the beginning, which is you said you really liked this study and I did too. I mean, this is a, it's a, it's a, it's a design that really works in this case. I mean, it doesn't deal with time varying confounding, which I think is a potential problem that there are potential sources of confounding that are left over that, that do change over time that are not captured in this database. So that, you know, that potentially, you know, is, is a, a problem, but on the, but you know, on average, it's a, it's a, a strong approach. And I, I think that they also have a question that is amenable to this type of design that it leads to a, fairly clear result. The one issue that I have with it that's sort of not a bias question so much as it's a what is the question question is why are we comparing opioid use to non-opioid use because you know the like from a a standpoint of do opioids opioids lead to increase your risk of fracture substantially sh- sure the answer to the question is yes but people take opioids to manage pain, you know, presumably in, in a lot of these cases. So we're not going to tell people don't do anything to manage your pain because you could you could have a, a fracture. We're going to tell people that they need to take some other approach to managing the pain. And that would presumably be the relevant comparison. I don't know what that would be, some kind of high dose, you know, anti-inflammatory medications or what. Chris, you might have some thoughts on that. But it just strikes me as the question isn't really the most relevant question. I don't know. I, I'm not sure I, I understand your question perfectly, Matt. What What is the alternative for a person? It, let's say we decide that the risk of fractures is so bad that we don't want to prescribe people opioids. What would we prescribe them instead to manage pain? Other than the obvious like Tylenol or non-steroidals? N- no. Which... I mean, wouldn't those be the some of the alternatives? Some kind of high-dose... And, uh, anti-inflammatory, right? I mean, those those are really our our. You know, we also have physical therapy, yep. but that doesn't work very well for acute pain, obviously. So, so I don't my think we is, have a lot of options here. Yeah. So my question is, why wouldn't why wouldn't that be the alternative? Not you know comparing opioid use to non-opioid use. Now I, I know the answer to the question. The answer to the question as to why they did it this way is because it's a self-controlled case series design, so you don't have people who are taking other medications to manage the same condition. So I, I get why they did what they did. I'm just not sure it's the the most relevant question because we're not going to tell people don't manage your pain. Mm-hmm. Right. And because, you know, NSAIDs and acetaminophen are, you know, compared with oxycodone are, yeah. are not particularly potent pain right. medicines. And so right away, there's a huge source of 
of confounding by indications that, you know, when you're talking about opioid use, you're probably talking about very, you know, significant pain, right. uh, as opposed to sort of the minor aches and scrapes of life. So, you know, it's not a, it would not be a good comparator for that reason. Yeah. And so I, I guess my, 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 my point here is it, it affects the way you interpret the question, but it also, it affects you know, like what that comparison really means, because there is there is presumably an effect of of being in pain on having a fall, right? If your if your leg is you know in your terrible pain in your leg and you don't treat it with opioids, you're going to limp around and are going to be at an increased risk of a fall. So by comparing to periods at which you're not taking the opioids, you're probably actually comparing it to time periods when a person was also not experiencing pain. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think the interpretation becomes challenging. That's all. You I know, mean, actually, now that you you make that point so clearly, Matt, it, it, it strikes me because one part of the, the analysis that, that I, I didn't fully understand was the increased risk incidence rate ratio of, of fractures in the pre-exposure period, which was the 90 days before that they, they, they started the opioids. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, huh, why, why, would that, why would they be at increased risk before they were taking the drug? But perhaps they're describing exactly what you're describing, is that for some portion of the individuals, the pain that was eventually being treated with the opioids had existed for quite some time before mm-hmm. this, this was started. And maybe they were sort of incapacitated and at risk for accidents because of that. And that we're only then seeing the, the additional impact of the opioids beyond just feeling, you know, you know, sort of lame and, and having difficulty maneuvering around safely. Yep. I think that, I think there's something to that. And so again, that's not a reason to dismiss these results at all. It's just, I think you want to, you know, I'm, I'm on this high horse of let's let's be clear in what the question we're asking is, so we know what what the results mean. And here's a case where I think a little bit, you know, you could put we could put a little bit more effort into just clearly defining what that what that question is. Yeah, it's a, it's a great example of the challenge we have in epidemiology, where we don't really know what's going on. Mm. We're, we're, you know, we're making educated guesses and we're drawing drawing windows of exposure because we we suspect that there's something going on, but we don't know categorically what is happening in these in these pre morbid or these pre exposure periods, which may actually be tremendously relevant in terms of you know trying to understand the outcome. I would agree. All right, let's let's move on. But before we do, there I want to point out two things in the study that I that I did not like, and then one thing that just intrigued me. So they say. Age, season, and exposure to fracture risk increasing drugs were adjusted for in this analysis, providing they significantly improved the model fit. As you guys know, I'm not a fan of adding variables because they significantly improve model fit. Then they say if the model fit was significantly P less than 0.05 improved by including the covariate, then it was included in the final model. So same problem. But then here was an intriguing one, which in which they say a p-value of less than 0.01 two-tailed was considered to indicate statistical significance. So I'm not a fan of statistical significance, but I thought it was interesting that they used chose to use p less than 0.01 instead of 0.05. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, just an interesting thing to... Another arbitrary yeah. milestone there. 
I would add as well, yes. I would have I would have been personally interested to see more sensitivity analyses by risk of fracture. They said that they ran different analyses and then they didn't go into depth, for example. I'd be interested in the subset of people with osteoporosis, for example. Mm. How did this, yeah. what was the risk in that subset? That was just one, you know, or people who have pre-existing conditions that might predispose them to fracture. That seemed to be the gap it was the osteoporosis question, but I'm sure there's others as well that it looks as if they did that analysis, but they didn't present it in the paper. <laughs> good point. Really good point. All right, let's move on to our, our second segment where we're going to talk about a piece that was published in Nature Medicine entitled A Dangerous Measles Future Looms Beyond the COVID-19 Pandemic by first author David Durheim. And you know, the, I, I, I can sort of summarize this one fairly quickly. Essentially, the idea here is that, you know, so much has changed during the pandemic. So much action has been taken to try to mitigate the severest impacts, including things like, you know, lockdowns and, and stay-at-home orders and things like that, that have led to large changes in the way that we go about, you know, vaccinating people for, uh, you know, childhood, what are typically childhood illnesses. So the authors note that in the six World Health Organization regions, max vaccination campaigns, outreach services and surveillance have, have been either canceled or, or slowed down. So they had they note there were 101 mass vaccination campaigns that were canceled in 56 countries during the first six months of the pandemic. And so not vaccinating kids for diseases like measles is presumably going to lead to a big problem when we start to emerge from pandemic behavior and start to, you know, interact again, that we are, you know, essentially laying the groundwork for, you know, increased morbidity and mortality associated with many of the the conditions that were either, you know, fairly under control, or at least we had robust vaccination programs going on for. And they focus on measles, presumably because measles is the most contagious thing that we know of. And therefore, if anything is going to rage back in a situation where there is decreased vaccination, it's going to be measles first. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, a pretty worrying thing. And of course, if if what we did during the pandemic was prevent a whole lot of mortality through through these, you know, slowdowns and 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 stay-at-home orders and and non-pharmaceutical interventions that then lead to increased mortality after the pandemic, then we will just have delayed mortality and, you know, we will have changed the profile of who is going to experience the the severe illness. So, you know, I thought this was an interesting piece. They do, however, note at the end of the piece that the COVID-19 pandemic offers a, a platform for accelerating progress towards measles elimination. So they, they talk about these new approaches we've taken to contact tracing that could then be repurposed for measles vaccination. So it's not all doom and gloom, but it is a, a worrying you know, pattern or, or a path that we are potentially going down. So Chris, I'm, I'm curious to hear first from you, what's your reaction to this potential looming threat? Is it, is it, do you think it's as bad as the authors make it out? Or do you think there is, this is something that we can potentially head off? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, you described it well earlier that measles is the most contagious of all contagious diseases known to man. You know, that is to say viruses that affect men. Yep. It is, it is, you know, 
COVID-19 is super contagious with a respiratory reproductive rate of around two and a half to three and a half. So that is like plenty contagious, but the reproductive rate for measles is like 16. You know, it's like, it's just, you know, almost, almost impossible to imagine how effective it is at spreading from person to person. So, you know, in that sense, it's kind of like the canary in the coal mine of infectious diseases that if you, if you wonder, you know, what happens when routine vaccinations, you know, in different parts of the world, are impeded because of the COVID-19 pandemic, I I think it's pretty reasonable to say that like we will probably see that first in measles because Mm -hmm. it is the the most aggressive. It is the most likely to take advantage of any gaps in our immunologic shields. And on top of that, measles is a particularly malignant you know, player in in child survival, not just because many children die of measles, particularly kids who are, you know, vitamin A deficient or have protein calorie malnutrition. So it's a major killer of of at-risk children, but it has Mm -hmm. this this sort of fascinating tendency to erase your immune system to other pathogens. And so Mm -hmm. it causes the sort of so-called, you know, immune amnesia, which allows you to die of you know, bacterial pneumonia and bacterial diarrheal diseases as well. So it, it, it has all sorts of, of negative impacts. And so I, I, I think they're right that this is something that we should, we should be a, a aware of and concerned about and that it is probably coming because of COVID-19. And of course, it's not, you know, it's, it is the canary in the coal mine. So we're not actually just talking about measles. We're just using measles as the, as the, the bellwether here. So yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, th- I think you made a good point. Me too. It's, it is it is it is worrying, but I do hope that there is some optimism. Jess, what's your reaction to this one? Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting, and I agreed with it. A, like a, a, a well done article. I mean, I think the idea that in as the pandemic wanes, hopefully we need to pay attention to catch up across the board for preventative care, and that includes vaccinations that were just not provided during this time period. And we need to start now thinking about how to do that. How do we reach kids who would have been vaccinated, who were not vaccinated, and how do we not just let that pass, I think is a is a really important thing. And, you know, I think to the extent that you know, logistically, our country was caught a little flat-footed when the vaccines were all of a sudden available, and then there was a logistic problem of distribution. That you know, we okay, we're getting the vaccines, but like, how do we actually get them out to people? I think that's a you know, a model that we could think about here, where we know this is going to be a problem. This is a problem already, and we could start to, as a you know, public health community, medical community, start to think about how to address how to deal with these gaps that occurred that need to be addressed or else we result in other problems like you both have said. I mean, I think, you know, the idea that children are maybe least susceptible to COVID but are going to be suffering longer-term consequences is a very valid one. I know in environmental health, there's been some research lately that's looked at concern about increased lead exposures from all the time at home, mm. especially in you know, especially in certain communities where maybe there is substandard or old housing, whereas the kids would be in kind of deleaded childcare facilities under other circumstances. So this these these issues cut across the board. I think measles is maybe the is is an is an urgent one and like chris is saying kind of most dramatic because it might happen earliest but there's going to be issues that have longer term consequences as well and the sooner we start to jump in to address some of those concerns and catch up i think to our benefit yeah yeah so we are going through what i i hope is a once in a you know a hundred year event but i we have no reason to to think that that is necessarily true anymore what I what I 
really hope is that what we do when this is all over, however you define all over, is to take the time to actively and carefully learn the lessons of what we can from this pandemic so that we don't repeat the same mistakes next time. And and one of those things you mean that like I think we need to think- like defunding the office for pandemic preparedness? <laughs> so, so, so many things. But I mean, but one of them I think is, you know, thinking clearly about how do we go through the process of mitigating the impacts of a of a, a deadly disease that's a you know global pandemic, but but also cater to the other needs that we have that are you know that that potentially offset some of those mitigating benefits of the non pharmaceutical interventions that we have been implementing, and you know, this would be one of them. How do we continue to get vaccinations for other diseases in a time in which we are going to massively disrupt the the current healthcare system? Mm, yeah. yeah. I, thought, so true. You know, I thought that issue that the authors brought up, though, of whether or not the COVID platform, that, that it could be beneficial for vaccination campaigns more generally, for acceptance of vaccines, for the idea that vaccines are required for certain activities, as we were talking about in the last episode, you know, that, that vaccination now is a public effort, is a huge public effort. And so maybe there, maybe there will be longer term benefits to that for children and for others as well. So I want I want to believe that I have to admit I have some skepticism here. I mean, for the reasons we talked about on the last show, you know, the idea that we are encountering vaccine hesitancy with the current vaccine because of of you know concerns about how quickly it was put together, also just because of you know forces that are you know anti-vax gaining a lot of traction during this time, and I I worry that that's going to have longer term effects on reductions in routine vaccinations. And, you know, they they express some optimism around the idea that this contact tracing platform may provide us new avenues. I, I feel like one of the areas where we've done really poorly during the this outbreak has been around contact tracing and and we put very little money into it. You know, it, it may be that even if we had put more money into it, it wouldn't be that effective because, you know, it's a disease, uh, an infection for which the, the transmission occurs before the symptoms. And so the spread is already going to happen by the time you've contacted people and they're not going to uh, isolate or quarantine anyway. I don't I don't know what the reasons are. It just doesn't feel to me like we've done great in that in that area. Mm hmm. I would add one other thing. I mean, I feel like in public health, we talk a lot about how our successes are invisible, you know, and I think that that's, yeah. that's like, like, vac like in vaccination, that's really clear. Like we've eradicated smallpox or people don't see kids with polio in the United States, for example. And so they don't have the same urgency about vaccination. And I do wonder if this could pose that opportunity for people to actually see the benefits of vaccination. If it turns out that there are lots of people who are vaccinated and then all the curves start going, trending downwards, it might, it might actually be good for vaccination. That's, that's a, hopeful, a, hopeful, <laughs> a hopeful expression. But the, you know, the idea that maybe this will be an opportunity for people to see the benefits in real time of vaccination that then might reflect well on vaccination more generally in a way that, that yeah. people don't see in their lifetimes or on a day-to-day -day basis so often. I, I sure hope that is true. I really yeah, do. Yeah, right on. All right, so then let's move on to our last segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing. And Jess, do you want to go first? 
Sure, thanks. So I have had this long-term interest in, as I think you know, the rest of you do kind of in viruses as what are they? Are they what kind of organism? They, you know, intracellular kind of this, this idea of kind of what is a virus. And it's this kind of unique and quirky and kind of wacky thing. And I think now, especially in this, you know, SARS-CoV-2 world, everyone has a new appreciation for viral virus and viral mutation and evolution and all of those interesting things about viruses. And so I found this study, which I thought was really interesting, this idea that some researchers in Brazil have identified something they call giant viruses which are viruses that are extra large, <laughs> that are the size of bacteria. So viruses are usually teeny teeny. But the idea that these are really large viruses that have that are about the size of bacteria and have and have kind of characteristics, cellular properties that are more along the lines of what you might see in a bacterial cell compared to a virus. They were found in sewage. This is like a burgeoning new field. Wondering like, yeah. is this the giant viruses? Are they kind of another classification, for example, of, of organism? That it's not a virus the way we see them now. It's not a bacterial uh, you know, organism clearly, but it's something kind of in between that might have been from an evolutionary perspective kind of squeezed in one way or the other. These researchers also found a number of these giant viruses that I'm looking at the headline with no recognizable genes. And so that's oh, kind really? of yeah. So that's kind what? of mind. That's kind of mind blowing. I mean, there are like, you know, what are they new, up to? Yeah, there's new. I mean, there's obviously there's like new viruses. I have I've read these these cool studies of people who capture rodents, for example, in the New York City subway, and they find new viruses all the time, and it's like freaky. And there, you know, there's there there's the idea that there's obviously new viruses to discover all the time, but the idea that there's no recognizable genes in some of these in some of these kind of giant viruses that mimic the size and some of the functionality of bacteria, kind of indicates that maybe this is something that, you know, from a long time ago that we're discovering something along the evolutionary trajectory of bacteria and viruses that was kind of interesting and that it was in sewage. So kind of bringing together one of my other favorite topics. Um, <laughs> you you yeah. do love the sewage. How did they what get in there? How did they get into the sewage? They, let's see, it looks like they were sampling. Wetsuits. Yeah, they were just sampling from effluent. I mean, that's, you know, it's like what they're doing now with COVID. They're just sampling from, oh. from wastewater. But that means, yeah. does, that, does that not mean that we are the... We are carrying these it's viruses? possible, right? I mean, or animals, or that there's some, right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, the idea is that does it function like a typical virus, which would require a host, typically, for survival beyond a certain period of time? Or does it not? Does it function with properties more like bacteria that can replicate and live without, a, you know, an organism host, right. for example, in the environment. And of, and of so, course, there, yeah. there, are, there are some weirdo bacteria that are obligate intracellular parasites, right. which, which, like in, in many ways, behave like viruses. So wacky. So, the, so everything is, is wacky and weird. Yeah, so cool. That is well, I hope we hear more about that. I want to know what those genes are up to. Well, I hope we don't hear about it in a bad way, though. <laughs> That's, yes, I agree. Yeah. All right. Chris, what do you got for us? Well, I just published a paper in the BMJ, so we're very pleased with ourselves. And uh, we're pleased because the BMJ has a has a very high impact factor, so that, that we, we can turn that into the assumption that people actually read it other than my mother. <laughs> And, and so this, you know, actually made me think back to some of the discussions we've had over the years about impact factors in journals. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I pulled an article about that, too, because I was curious, like, what, what is considered to be a good impact factor? Like, how do you how do you draw the line? 
Oh, okay. And actually, there yep. turned out to be sort of a scholarly answer to that question, uh, published in an online journal called SciJournal.org. Okay. And so I, I, I thought I would I would present this to you as a series of quizzes to see if you or Jess or Jess has, uh, had to check off. But are you aware of of you know what proportion of scientific publications have an impact factor of one or above? Okay, one one or above. Yeah. Wait, so like in one other words, or one how many? Or more. How many is in other words another way to think of that would be how many are below one? That's right. I would say below one is probably 20%. Oh, you're really close. It's 27%. But but I'll wow. take that as a I'll I'll give you two marks for that one. Yeah. Okay. So 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 somewhere between 1 and 2 is about the median impact score for all journals. Yeah. It, it's about 42% of all publications have an impact factor of 2 or above and 73% of publications have an impact factor of 1 or above. So somewhere between 1 and 2 is the 50% median. Wow. So that that is, you know, that is where average is, is somewhere between one and two. So but then, you know, when you look at the distribution of the impact scores, it's an asymptotic decay curve. Mm -hmm. So it, it drops off really fast. And so by the time you get to an impact factor of, say, five, which doesn't seem that different, you're now at the 82nd percentile. Wow. Right. That like, drops off fast. That drops off fast. And so having an impact factor of five or above is actually great right that is that is like you you should be you should be psyched if you can do that in fact anything above a three is 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 considered to be you know a, 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 is like a 75 percent percentile so that is a, well, that is well, a win well wait 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 so i i hear what you're saying that that's great in the sense of if you're the journal However, it, yeah, it, it, yeah. it may just it, be a sign, or in terms it is, of I think, meritoriousness, we have too many. We have too many journals publishing material that probably should never be published. Well, that is a totally separate question, and yes. and, and it was one of my other questions, which is amongst all the various fields of medicine, what fields have the highest numbers of journals? Okay, and and I'll, I'll I, I'll give you the I'll let you guess at the top one. Fields within medicine? No, no, fields of research. Which oh. which. Field. Fields of research, medicine. Yes, yes. So yeah. by far, medicine right. is by far has twenty three hundred and eighty approximately journals, whereas the next highest up would be agriculture and biological sciences, which is about thirteen hundred eighty eight, and biochemistry, which is eleven eighty seven. And after that, things get pretty skinny until you get to way down to like the journal of, well, I guess they call it multidisciplinary. So that's a grab bag, but say something like pharmacology, toxicology, and pharmaceutics has only sixty five journals. Hmm. So medicine is a is a like a is a giant giant area in terms of, of overall research. Now, are you curious to know like what is the what is what is the percentile rank for an impact factor of ten? Well, obviously, I feel like you're trying to sell me something here. It's the ninety eighth percentile. Ten? Ten and above is the ninety-eighth percentile. So when you're talking about like Yelza. new journal or science where they're in like the forties or fifties, we're talking in like Tiny, tiny the, little. The wealthiest one percent. The wealthiest, right? Exactly. So I thought that was interesting, um, and it that made me feel a lot better about about you know what I thought was kind of my mediocre publishing history so far. Congratulations on your BMJ study, then. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we were super psyched about that. That's yeah, awesome. and even mom was happy. So. Oh well, that's. I mean, isn't that why you do it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. What I want to talk about comes from Retraction Watch. Ooh. You know, Retraction Watch is something we we talk about every once in a while here. It's you know, a, a publication that is looking at studies that get retracted. But this one I thought was 
interesting in the reason that the study was retracted that I think leads to a whole bunch of new questions. So the the article is about an Elsevier journal retracting a study, and the article says bowing to legal pressure from the supplement maker Herbalife, Elsevier earlier this year, this was published end of last year, so earlier last year, retracted and then removed a paper which claimed that a young woman in India died of liver failure after using the company's products. And the move has led to more legal threats. So in August of 2018, a group of researchers in India published a report in the Journal of Clinical and Experimental Hepatology about the death of a 24-year-old woman who had taken a variety of supplements produced by Herbalife, a massive and massively controversial maker of non-prescription diet aids. The study itself was a case report. So, you know, you can you can certainly make a case that in a case report, you can not ascribe causation. You know, so it, it, it comes to a sort of an interesting issue around what is considered evidence for causation. But it also gets to the issue of, you know, do those kinds of claims merit retraction and more to the point should legal pressure lead to the retraction of something and what is that potentially going to do to research in areas for which there is a financial incentive from a company that can bring that kind of pressure to bear on journals Hmm. You know, there's a lot of interesting details in there around. What, know, what the, was the journal the, that got that, that had the, had to retract it? So it was the Journal of Clinical and Experimental Hepatology. I don't think I read that one very often. I don't read it either. And you know, again, I mean, I I I do think there are questions that you could raise around, you know, whether or not we can ascribe causation to certain things, but. You know, you could you could make that same argument, of course, about much of the published observational literature. And, you know, yet you don't see I don't see lawsuits being brought around defamation for publications of research inquiries. And I, I do wonder about the potential chilling effect this could have if it goes higher up to not just a case report, but to a, you know, a, a, an observational study for which the, the makers of the, the product don't like the results. Hmm. I, so I just thought it was a really concerning retraction in a way that we really haven't talked about before. Hmm. So yeah, chilling. Yeah, chilling indeed. So that is the end of our program. So if you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at, at @profmattfox, or Don at, at @dthea1, or Chris at id.gill. Jess doesn't have a Twitter yet, so you can't tweet her. Or you can find us at the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing. And I have to say once again, for having a cat house that is 
nicer, I think, than my house. Again, to be clear, there's the I cat. Mean a house. I mean a house for his cats. That his cat just did the most amazing acrobatic jump. That was amazing onto, from the, the from the floor house. all the way to the top level in one leap. That is incredible. That, that was astounding. Wow! Anyway, it's the Usain Bolt of cats. Yes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the podcast, and we hope you will download our next episode. 